When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Since 2008, Big Think has been sharing big ideas in small, powerful doses from the most creative thinkers of our time. The Think Again podcast takes us right out of our comfort zone. We surprise some of the smartest people you know with ideas they're not prepared to discuss. I'm very happy to be joined today by Dr. James Doty. He's a neurosurgeon and the founder and director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education at Stanford University. His new book is called Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Welcome to Think Again, James. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Your book begins with an amazing description of prepping a little boy for brain surgery. You write movingly about reassuring him that it's going to be okay but you also write very graphically about the operation itself. For example, that peeling the skin off the skull makes a sound like Velcro. It struck me while reading that, that real compassion involves looking long and hard at things we'd rather turn away from. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's absolutely correct. Suffering can be very painful to observe, but it's also an opportunity to reach deep within ourselves and if you will, be at the highest potential of human behavior by recognizing that suffering and alleviating that suffering if one is able to. So, I mean, I wonder sometimes about whether in our increasingly media-driven culture where concepts like compassion don't necessarily play as sexy sound bites, whether that's a dangerous situation. You know, the more saturated we become by entertainment and sort of quick-fix media, these concepts and their importance becomes a little hard to convey. One of the problems is, and unfortunately this is the nature of our evolution as a species, if it's a safe situation or we're relaxed, frankly, as a human being then, if you were to observe that, you wouldn't have necessarily an emotional response or you'd have a very positive one. Right. But the things that increase people's blood pressures, increase their heart rates, are things that potentially cause our amygdala to respond. This is our flight or fight response because right. those are the things that are going to potentially put us in danger. Right, right. So that's why we're so attuned to this and that's why we're so manipulated by the media because they know to sell what they're selling, they have to create drama, they have to create violence, they have to create anxiety and fear. And this is the, why reality shows exist too because they actually create an atmosphere 
they don't you know you don't see reality shows where people are sitting there oh this is so great we're having such a wonderful time thank you for being so nice to me right you see reality shows that are created so there's tension there's anxiety there's anger there's hostility it is our instinct to turn towards things which have an emotional context like that is it fair to say that constant and repeated exposure to this kind of media is in some sense traumatizing for the brain, that it might rewire it in ways that are not positive? Or is, is the evidence not there? No, I think the evidence is in fact there. And interesting, there's a lab here in New York whereby they actually exposed individuals to fiction in certain movies and demonstrated that with repeated exposure, this can rewire people so that they're either more kind or thoughtful, but it can also work the other way. Is there any viable alternative that isn't conscious? I mean, besides saying, okay, I'm going to meditate for six months, is there something we can release you know, out there into the culture at large or way, you know, ways of communicating the importance of compassion? or Actually having a conversation like this and also having self-awareness about this research is now shown when an individual with intention or consciously acts with compassion or kindness, that results in others, of course, feeling nurtured and cared for. And when you're in that mental state, that allows you to be at your most productive and your most creative and your most thoughtful. Okay. So there's no question that as a species, our default mode is to engage in these types of behaviors. But it's hijacked oftentimes by this flight or fight response. Right. The amazing thing, though, is, and one that you alluded to a little bit ago, is there are certain mental training practices, mindfulness with compassion. At Stanford, we've developed a compassion cultivation training. But when you practice these types of exercises, mental exercises, one, what it does is allows you to pause and not have an immediate emotional response to an event. Right and to process it more effectively in a more thoughtful fashion. What happens so many times is that if an event occurs, somebody's antagonistic to you, or as an example, let's say somebody were to cut in front of you as you're trying to get somewhere, you know, what's your immediate emotional response? It can yeah, be- Yeah, you start screaming and cursing, basically. Yeah, and you can Waving use- Waving your fist. <laughs> or using certain finger movements, <laughs> right. To, right? But, you know, when you think about that and you pause a little bit and say, geez, maybe that person wasn't being mean or just a jerk, what if, as an example, he was with his wife in the front seat, she had just broke her water, she was pregnant, and he's trying to get her to the hospital. You're not going to sit there and right. scream and curse. You're going to, oh my God, what can I do to help them, right? right? And when you reprocess, then it allows you to come at things in a different way and not a reactive way in which you set off all these emotional alarms and you stimulate your sympathetic nervous system. Well, I could continue in this vein all day, but I think some of these ideas may come up again. We'll see what they're going to throw at us. We're, we're now getting to the crazy part of the show where you and I are in exactly the same boat. We're going to watch three interview clips that neither of us have ever seen before. They're chosen by Big Things producers, and I have no foreknowledge whatsoever of what they've chosen, I promise. Are we ready? Absolutely. All right, let's do this. So, the first one... So this is Marie Gottschalk, who is the author of Caught, The Prison State and the Lockdown of American Politics. Woo! Politics season here yeah. in America. No solitary confinement for juveniles or the mentally ill at all is the title of this video. The solitary confinement, you're in a cell 22, 23 hours a day. 
you don't come out for meals. You have a slot in the door where your meals are given to you. Many states restrict the number of visitors, the lack of any kind of human contact even when you have those visits. Psychologists and other doctors who've studied this say that people decompose, they lose their mind. It's an um, unimaginable way of keeping people. We have some of the most degrading, dehumanizing prisons and jails in any developed country. The UN Rapporteur several years ago said anything more than 15 days in isolation is considered torture. And the UN is expected any day now to approve the new standard rules for the minimum treatment of prisoners, which haven't been revised in almost half a century. And one of the rules that the UN General Assembly is expected to approve is that prolonged solitary confinement is not acceptable, and it shouldn't be used for juveniles, and it shouldn't be used for the mentally ill at all. Well, I think regardless, I'm not talking about mentally ill or juveniles, I think any human being put in solitary confinement for an extended period, that is equivalent to torture. Human beings as a species require nurturing, interaction, connection. Right. And when you remove that, which is one of the most degrading, dehumanizing actions, it's horrible and has a profound effect. In America, we have gone from a system where we try to rehabilitate to it is almost a torture and it's interesting because when we turn the prison system into private companies, you can just follow the dramatic increase in the prison population. And in fact, there have been some contracts that have been made that if you don't keep the prison full, the state has to pay. So when you created a militarized police force that has happened in the United States, when you create an environment where you f the fundamental nature of the prisons in the United States is to effectively torture, dehumanize, objectify, and take away dignity, right. you're not going to rehabilitate people. You're basically creating a system where there's going to be violence, right. where there's going to be recidivism, and there's not going to be any redemption. And fundamentally, Justice without the opportunity for redemption is torture. So when you look at other systems, as an example, the Nordic countries, where first of all, not everyone owns a weapon, where you have a police force that in a decade or decades have hardly killed anyone per capita compared to the United States, and where they treat their prisoners with dignity and respect. There's almost no violence. There's a right. decrease, dramatic decrease in recidivism. I mean, imagine going to a prison. You're put in solitary confinement. You're a young person. So instead of giving you the opportunity to be a better human being, instead of giving you an opportunity to get educated, right. you're treated like an animal. Well, when you torture and punish an animal and don't show it any love or nurturing, it comes out as an animal. And it has no ability to function in the normal civil society. All it knows is that every second there's a potential threat to its existence. And it saddens me and it embarrasses me when we look at what we do to our prisoners. And it's even worse because disproportionately 
This prison system affects the poor and affects the minorities. It is an inherently unfair system, and America should be able to do better than that. What would compassionate and neurobiologically informed incarceration look like? Well, it's not hard. You simply look at some of the Nordic countries. But as an example, when you have a mechanism which recognizes that these are human beings, where the very nature of the system shows the individual that they're not an animal, they're not inherently evil, they made a mistake. I would submit to you that the vast majority of people who are in prison today in the United States, they're not evil people. Fundamentally, these are people who oftentimes have not had love and nurturing in their lives. They're disproportionately poor and minorities. And the amazing thing is, and this has been shown over and over again, even with the most hardened criminal, if you take the time to give them respect, dignity, and opportunity, they are able to be rehabilitated. And you see people rehabilitated who are excited to help other people, who want to change themselves for the better, want to change their environment, and frankly, are very sorry about the mistakes they have done. I will tell you myself, I have done things where I should have gone to jail for mistakes that I made, and I wasn't caught. You know, I was a juvenile delinquent for a period of time. And in that system, by the grace of God, it didn't happen, but it could have happened. Right. And when you recognize that at any moment in time, you can be that other person, and then you put yourself in that perspective and say, how would I want to be treated? Right. Because these people are just like you, and they have the same desires, the same goals, the same aspirations as you. And when you put yourself in that position, suddenly it's not so good to be in solitary confinement. As a corollary to this, after the 2008 or 2007 financial crisis, you saw some of the most staunchest people who are, I don't believe in unemployment insurance. These people who don't have jobs, it's their own fault. They should get out of it just like I got out of it. Suddenly, they don't have a job. They can't pay their bills. Right. And their home's taken from them, their car's taken from them. And they see what it's like to live at the lowest rungs of society in poverty. And suddenly, they want the government to help them, to support them, because the fact of the matter is, People in these situations did not choose to be in those situations. Right. If you grow up in generational poverty, your likelihood of ever getting out of that, no matter what potential you have, is essentially zero. And it only gets worse as we see this ever-increasing divide between the rich and the poor. I have nothing to add to that. <laughs> I, I, I really don't. No, I mean, you know, that said it's... Just powerfully and succinctly, and I think we're gonna move on to the next one. Let's do that. So this one is Victoria Coates, foreign policy advisor to Ted Cruz's 2016 presidential campaign. In this age of global divide, art is the best unifying force we have. I blame the perception of, of art being liberal on Picasso, because uh, he was a card-carrying communist. It's interesting, the, the artist who painted the great anti-fascist picture saw absolutely nothing wrong with totalitarian communism. And certainly, most artists tend to be liberal. I don't think, though, that that means Republicans or conservatives can't appreciate art. And I also think art is a real uniting force. I mean, I don't care if you are Bernie Sanders or Ted Cruz. 
I think you both can come together to appreciate an achievement like Michelangelo's David. That shouldn't be a difficult or divisive thing. It should be a uniting thing. Whether we want to be or not, we are engaged in a civilizational struggle with forces that are extremely hostile to what we would consider to be the Western tradition, although now it is a global tradition. This is something we should all come together to support and celebrate. And so art can be, I think, a wonderful vehicle for that kind of unity. Whether it's David or Picasso, and whether you're liberal or not, I think there's always going to be differences of opinion about art. I think, though, one of the interesting and telling comments at the beginning is, you know, Picasso was a card-carrying communist. And whether that's the case or not, I, I don't actually know, but I, frankly, I don't care. He's an artist. What he was trying to do was to, through his own medium, demonstrate beauty. The other interesting thing is when you talk about liberals versus conservatives in terms of the art world, you know, the conservative world is one in which there is limited opinion. And the members try to elevate themselves above others by implying that their worldview is the best worldview. And I think the reason that, that the reason most artists are more liberal is that you have to see the whole world. You have to see the differences in life. And when you have a diverse experience, first of all, you're no longer conservative, as an example. It would be inane to think that Christianity has some superiority over other beliefs or belief systems. Because if there was a just God, if you will, why would he sit there and allow a small percentage of people to have insight and awareness and only they get to go to heaven? And we have the whole entire rest of the world who've never even experienced Jesus Christ, but they're condemned to hell. It just makes no logical sense. Right. And then, of course, you could go into extraterrestrials, but we won't even go <laughs> that right we, now. We, that, you know, if we wanted to, that could be interesting <laughs> for the audience. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I'd argue that artists, sort of by their very nature, if I can make this generalization, which I'm going to, push boundaries. That's what they do. They reach outward. They explore what is possible to think and discover and, and express in new ways. I don't think... Michelangelo is particularly divisive at this point in history. Well, let me point out something to you, though. It's interesting because she didn't say Michelangelo was gay, and because <laughs> he was gay, we hate his art, right? Did she? No. And Michelangelo clearly was a homosexual. I mean, I think everyone right. acknowledges this. And it's sort of interesting that she would not make that type of a comment because then, often in her world, who would say, oh my God, because Michelangelo's gay, I don't want my children exposed to his art because they right. can become gay now. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, maybe maybe it didn't occur to her, or maybe she, you know, I mean, it's interesting she focused on the card-carrying communism. Is there a card? Does that exist? I don't They're think always it's talking this. about card. <laughs> <laughs> Are you a card-carrying conservative? No, I, I don't know. But I think you have an excellent point, which is this idea that they push boundaries. Yeah. And look at what we see over and over again when you have these conservative opinions that don't allow for open dialogue, don't allow for acceptance of other opinions. Yeah. What happens? You get repression of emotion, which is the worst thing that can happen to an artist. By definition, art is the expression of emotion. And this is why, unfortunately, in these types of repressed environments, you see that 
individuals feel they cannot be accepted in those environments. Right. And whether they're homosexual, whether they're transgender, whether they're actually just have a different opinion, they're pro-abortion, whatever it is. Right. When you create a narrow, narrow worldview, the people sometimes who by birth, by culture, by location, by proximity are involved with this, oftentimes they cannot authentically be who they are. Right, and maybe those who were not psychologically or constitutionally robust enough to say, you know, screw this, I'm doing my thing anyway, maybe they never made, you know, maybe they never emerged into into full flower and we don't know about them, maybe lost to history. No, I think you're right. And, and you know, the problem with these uh, conservative viewpoints sometimes, and, I, and don't get me wrong, liberals can be just as guilty in a different way, <laughs> But, uh, you know, you have this tendency to have confirmational bias, right? Right. Because you only hear what confirms your worldview. Right. And there's nothing wrong being a conservative Christian if that's how you see the world. The problem is when you try to force that worldview on other people's through threat of injury or death. Right. I think that's when it becomes a serious problem. Definitely. And picking up on something you said, what we're calling conservatism doesn't always break down along American party lines, Democrat and Republican, right? I mean, there is a, a left conservatism that happens as well, which we call political correctness in its extreme forms, where artists may feel confined by people's concerns with identity politics. If I say this, if I do that, someone might be offended or I, you know. No, I think you're exactly right. I mean, look, there you can have extremes at every end. The reality is, as we see in the American political movement, though, is the vast majority of people are sort of in the center. It's the most vocal extremes that are the problem, and it's always about 3 to 5%, and sometimes they dictate the conversation in the media. Yeah, I think that's that's right. Shall we move on? Sure. I'm terrified now what we're going to see. <laughs> well, it can't be as challenging as the time when Howard Gardner the uh, father of multiple intelligence theory had to answer the question whether pornography was art. So oh, that's interesting. <laughs> That'd be a good question. I like that. All right, let's, let's see what we have. This is How to Use Magical Thinking. Matthew Hudson, author of The Seven Laws of Magical Thinking. Okay. Sounds have, good. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Let's see what we got. My technical definition of magical thinking is that it's a an attribution of mental properties to non-mental phenomena or vice versa. So that means thinking of natural events outside in the world as having some element of mind or consciousness or treating your own thoughts as if they have some sort of physical properties and maybe they can go out and, and influence the world directly. One evolutionary reason for magical thinking is just our tendency to see patterns in the world and to read meaning into them. We're so good at it that we often read meaning into patterns that really isn't there. So we see faces in the clouds, or we hear messages and records played backwards. So for instance, if you think something and then it happens, you might think your thought caused the thing to happen. Many skeptics feel that they are immune to magical thinking, that this just doesn't apply to them. I say they're wrong. Magical thinking is based on very basic intuitions and emotions that we all have. Skepticism is just the, the tendency to question these intuitions, to use critical thinking, to, to second-guess these, these elements of magical thinking. 
So this is something that I definitely struggle with because I think I'm naturally of an optimistic and sort of dreamy kind of cast of mind. <laughs> um, not not dreamy in the old 1950s sense. He's so dreamy, but you know, imagining. And yet, I come from a family of scientific skeptics who are pretty rigorous about don't have any illusions about things, don't engage in magical thinking. And yet, you know, optimism can be helpful. I think in many ways, everyone must be an optimist in order to keep going. Well, I, I, mean, I guess least, by definition, uh, the other option is nihilism and that there's no purpose. And I think that's true. So fundamentally, you could argue that if there's no purpose, let's just shoot ourselves and forget it all and we don't have to deal with anything. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting he uses the term magical thinking. We know, and we've discussed this a little bit, is that a person's emotional state affects other people. There's science there. There's no question about that. Right, right. And also, when you, if you will, and he sort of alluded to it, this idea of visualizing something happening, there's evidence that those types of techniques can help these things manifest. And yes, on some level, I think we do have the ability to impact them. And there's no question that having a positive worldview affects others and your own situation. And as I talk about in my book, my interaction with this woman at this magic store who right. taught me a number of mental techniques or practices or meditation or mindfulness practice, my personal situation did not change at all. But everything else changed. Right. And why did that happen? It was because fundamentally I looked at the world in a different way. Instead of being terrified and anxious and believing that I had no possibilities, I looked at every interaction as having the possibility of changing things. And I looked at every person as this exciting opportunity to engage in and that they were wonderful and loving and kind in general. And they weren't always. But the very nature of that changed perception of how I saw the world allowed me to change the trajectory of my life in a very positive way. I don't think it's magical thinking. I think there's a lot of science based on this. Magical thinking, though, is imparting agency when we clearly know there is no agency, whether it's the weather, whether it's, you know, like my wife, when we drive around looking for a parking space, she says, parking karma, come to me. <laughs> I sit there like, what? And then the space opens up, she goes, see, I told you. Right. But of course, it doesn't take into account the fact that for the last 30 minutes, the other day we drove around, we never found a parking place, right? I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, and this may be sort of a burst world luxury in some ways, you, you have to, one way or the other, believe that there is opportunity and that things are moving or going to move or have the potential of moving in a positive direction. And I mean, obviously, rationally, like if you look at, I mean, and I don't, you know, I'm not a religious person, so I don't believe in the transmigration of souls or whatever, but if you look at life as finite, you know, if you look at the end of the story, yeah, you know, you, you, you die, you know, so, so point is that we're being impelled by something which is in a way magical thinking, you know, if we sat and thought about the fact that we're all going to die and there's really no alternative and there's no life after and it just ends and frankly, we're just a DNA collection <laughs> that, you know, did its thing and it's over. People would find that horrible to even think about that, geez, all of this for nothing at the end of it, I don't get to have the X number of virgins or I don't get to <laughs> meet St. Paul or St. Peter at the pearly gates and uh, geez, that's horrible. But well, here's what we do know. We know that you and I are sitting here together. We know that 
this is the only moment that we have with certainty. Hmm. You know, a meteorite could come right. through here and kill us. We know that if we put ourselves in the right mental state, that it can cause incredible ecstasy, love, and this incredible feeling of being embraced by this warmth. That simple act of being in the present moment and recognizing at this second that's all we have, that's quite extraordinary. And why not embrace that for what it is? And leave it at that. There, you don't need anything else. All you need is for us to be together today, you and I sharing this moment. Anything else, it's irrelevant. What happened 20 minutes ago, it has no power. What's going to happen, we don't know. So why get lost in them? Let's just be here. The other, I'd like to comment on the other statement you talked about, sure. you know, this first world luxury. You're right. I mean, there are people in the world who, you know, they're fundamentally in slavery. Their whole day is spent going, as an example, six or eight hours just to get water or to get enough food to eat. Yeah. They're not thinking about magical thinking. They're thinking about surviving. I mean, they're fundamentally working at the lowest level of Maslow's hierarchy, right? And in fact, when you look at that, in some ways, it shows the evolution of our society, right? For most people, uh, you know, 100,000 years ago, that's how you lived. You were just in a state of trying to survive. And unfortunately, there are a group of people, a large group of people who are still in that state. Our task as human beings is to give those who don't have that luxury the same luxury that we have. I couldn't agree more. Dr. James Doty, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming on Think Again. Thank you. It was a pleasure. So that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. We have an incredible lineup of 2016 guests that we're starting to record. I'm going to keep most of that under wraps for now, except for next week's guest. But in the meantime, if you haven't had a chance to do this or if you're just joining us, please do us a favor, go to iTunes or wherever you like to listen and rate or review the show. It makes a major difference in terms of our discoverability. There are something like 250,000 podcasts at this point, and that number is growing every day. And we've had a really good response to the show, but I just want to make sure that as many people as possible hear it. Next week, I'm joined by Mark Goodman, who writes and thinks a lot about cybercrime and how the devices that we love so much actually pose some major risks. I'll see you then.